So anyway, um, let me pray before we get started. Father, we thank you for this morning, and we do thank you for that sunshine, and we thank you for the rain last night, and we thank you for the blessing of your presence here. And we do, we do ask, uh, come Holy Spirit, come and fill this room, fill our hearts and our minds as we sort of go to your word and understand you and uh, understand what you're trying to say to us. And, and I, you know, I know that we don't listen well. And so we pray, Father God, that you would kind of take us by the cheeks and hold our faces to yours and say, look at me. And listen to me. And that we would be blessed and built up by your words. I pray that all that is Jason would fall away this morning. And everything that you want to say would stick. And uh, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So if we, we're doing a three, four-week series uh, this fall on, based on the prayer requests that we've been having in the newsletter for the church, and that's on worship, word, and witness. And we just finished worship, if you remember, a couple weeks back, and um, now we're moving on to word to learn how to dwell, which is the title of the series, in the word of God, which is an absolute gift to humanity, right? I mean, my goodness, it's just wonderful. Um, now, I'm going to say some things in the beginning here that, you know, I don't know if it's going to rub you the wrong way <laughs> or not, but if it does, come talk to me, you know, anyway. But Christian leadership across the board, not just at 6-8, but across all churches right now, has been thrust into reiterating the importance of God's Word, right? Uh, it, given there's been such a deviance from it in, in the Christian church, the church has been cleaved in two. If you haven't noticed, the Southern Baptist Convention itself has been pushed, pushed in half. It's just crazy. One side I would say, and this is my terminology that I've adopted, is, is there is orthodox historical Christianity, which I think that we fall in here at 6-8, or we at least try to. Um, the other would be what Vody Bakum, a black pastor, uh, calls a cult born out of a growing ethnic Gnosticism, surrounded by and beginning with the issue of race, but dipping far into issues of sexuality and economics and stuff like that. Um, he says that, you know, he calls it a cult. He says a, a cult stays close enough to the Bible to avoid immediate detection, hiding the fact that it has a new sort of theology and a new glossary and, uh, you know, of terms that sort of ever so slightly di diverge from Christian orthodoxy, right? And so it borrows from the familiar and the accepted and then infuses that stuff with a new meaning and allowing it to draw the faithful away from orthodoxy. And so he states in his book, uh, Fault Lines, which I forgot to bring this morning, I wanted to show you, but it's a good book, that this new cult has created this new lexicon, this new vocabulary, um, which includes... One, that it has its own cosmology, and a cosmology just means basically your worldview, how you view the world, right, through the lens that you view the world with. And then um, it looks at reality through the lens of critical theory, critical race theory, and intersectionality. And, um, if, and I don't know where you stand on those things, but if you know me, I am not a fan of any of it. I don't think it's biblical. It, I don't think it, it, it really stands with... with uh, the gospel at all. I think it, it is destructive. Um, it says that original sin has been redefined as racism. 
He says that law is redefined as anti-racism, that the gospel is redefined as racial reconciliation, which we would be for racial reconciliation, right? That's, That's where the the difficulties come in. Uh, he says the new martyrs are people like Trayvon and Mike and George and Brianna Taylor and people like that. Uh, the new priests are the oppressed minorities. Uh, the new means of atonement are reparations. The new birth is redefined as wokeness or being woke. Um, the new liturgy is lament, always you know, be, be lamenting what you are and who you are, stuff like that. The new canon are the principles of critical social justice, social science. And the new theologians are people such as Robin DiAngelo and Kendi and Brown and Crenshaw and McIntosh and people like that. And the new catechism or the new confession of faith, which is what a catechism is, is say their names. If you can say their names, then you're in the door, right? And you're okay. Now, there is no soteriology. There's no sort of doctrine of salvation in this whole construct. There's only a perpetual penance in an effort to battle an incurable disease, right? Now, I want to stop there and say, uh, we did eight weeks on all this stuff back last summer, if you remember, if you were here. If you weren't here and you want to listen to that, it's all online. Uh, it's in writing as well. You can, you can pick it up and read it. Um, I do not read the Scriptures, nor have I ever read the Scriptures and come away with the thought that I could be a racist. I mean, that would be exactly a, a contrary to God's heart. So let's be honest about that. We are for not being racist in this church. We've always preached that. God has called us to reach the nations and love all peoples. So I just don't get where where that comes from. But um, Vody has been warning us for over 20 years about ethnic Gnosticism. Ethnic, since it is rooted in the real or perceived experience of certain minorities or certain ethnic groups. And then Gnostic in the sense that Gnosis meant knowledge and in the Greek, and that it's rooted sort of in in this uh, new special knowledge that you have to have to understand things. So Gnosticism, understand, Paul wrote against it extensively in the New Testament, right? He attacked it, and, and it's come up, it's reared its ugly head over the history of the church over and over again. And whatever form it takes, it has always been one of the most subtle dangers to Orthodox historical Christian thinking, right? It claims that the Word of God is not sufficient for life. Really important point. That we need some special extra biblical knowledge to truly interpret and understand what God's saying to us through the Scriptures. Right? And that's just not true. It it typically redefines terms and, and infuses new meanings into them, into words and concepts to in, to undermine truth in a, in a subtle and almost imperceptible way. So in this new cult of, you know, the gospel can only be understood through the lens of critical race theory and intersectionality. And I just don't see that that is true. In other words, progressive Christianity would say that you can't really understand the scriptures because you're not woke, right? That you're just not there you've you've not put in the work you've not done the work uh ingesting all the new information needed to proper to to properly interpret the scriptures and i just don't see that that's true because we would hold to second timothy 3 16 through 17 which states that all scripture is god breathed 
and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Righteousness meaning all that is godly and all that is good, right? And if we believe that God is love and that God is good, then that is wonderful, right? Then verse 17, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Not every evil work. You know, we're not setting out to do evil. We're setting out to do good stuff, right? And so this tells us three things, if you just look at that quickly. That firstly, the Bible is the God-breathed communication of himself to humanity. That's kind of amazing if you think about it, right? It really is. It's not just people's speculation, nor is it dependent on the words or ideas of humanity for its authority. It actually, its authority is directly from God itself. You know, like you don't have to reference anything else. This is what the Bible says, right? Secondly, it says that it's profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. In other words, the Bible is useful for guiding and correcting and training in any ethical issue that we face. It really is. Um, If we had only the Bible to go on, right, for all of society, it would be more than sufficient to guide a society into right thinking and right practice, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, on any ethical issue that we have that we would face. Now, people have twisted the scriptures to do, do evil. We know that, but we, we're not trying to do that, right? Which would bring us to the third thing, that the Bible is sufficient to bring us into completeness and to equip us for every good work. It's the Bible. It's not sociology or psychology or political science. All those, those things can be helpful at times in different ways and, you know, whatever. But it's the Bible which offers sufficient instruction on answers for every ethical issue we'll ever face. And I truly believe that. Now, I say all that not to bring up all the issues, Not to wade through those weeds this morning. That's not the purpose of this sermon or even this series. But it is to set the stage as to the importance of God's word and its guidance in life in this cultural moment. And I find that a lot of people are not thinking. They're just letting it all wash over them. They're not even really thinking about these things. You have to start thinking. This is an important cultural moment right now. So... I want to remind us that Gnosticism in all of its forms is insidious. I agree with Paul. It is subtle, and it is extremely damaging to the church and to our message. And the truth is that we are being influenced, all of us. I mean, you cannot sit there and walk through this life without feeling the influence that that is just washing over us. By what is the question, right? Because you got to know your enemy, right? But do we counteract all of that with a deep, abiding love and honor for God's word as the directive for our lives, as the overarching directive for our lives? Not that we shouldn't be broadly uh, read and broadly informed. I I would agree with that, and I do read. Somebody asked me this week, you know, do you read things that you disagree with? Yes, I do. Quite often. And, uh, you know, I want to know what they're saying, right? So, but, that, but, but we're not saying that we shouldn't be widely informed. We are saying, though, that, that everything gets measured for the Christian. Everything gets measured against the Word of God. And when a message is not congruent with the Scriptures, then we don't adopt it as part of our lifestyle or our thinking, right? 
God has given us his word for a purpose. God has given us his word for his purpose. This is a great quote from N.T. Wright. He says, the Bible isn't there. It's a lengthy quote. The Bible isn't there simply to be an accurate reference point for people who want to look things up to be sure that they've got, gotten them right. It's there to equip God's people to carry forward his purposes of new covenant and new creation, to enable people to work for justice, to sustain their spirituality as they do so, to create and enhance relationships at every level, and to produce that new creation which will have about it something of the beauty of God himself. The Bible isn't like an accurate description of how a car is made, It's more like the mechanic who helps you fix it, the garage attendant who refuels it, and the guide who tells you how to get where you're going. And where you are going is to make God's new creation happen in this world, not simply to find your way unscathed through the old creation. So we have purpose in this world. God has given us his purpose through his word. And we've talked about that quite a bit, and that's what all three of these series are really about. And so today we're going to look a little bit more intently, and we've looked at it in past weeks, at the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. If you want to pull out your pew Bible, it's on page 125. This saved you the nightmare of finding that for yourself, but page 125. Uh, Keep it open because we're going to be referencing things here and there. Uh, I want to start out with reading verses 1 through 3 as sort of a preface Where Moses says to the Israelites, this is starting in verse 1, these are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord, I saw somebody waving to me, I thought thought I was like, never mind. Anyway, (laughs) these are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you and so that you may enjoy a long life. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Verse 3. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. We'll end there for a minute. You know, in an age which calls for the defunding of police and politicians who will pass sweeping mandates, whether you agree with them or not, any passage that begins with commands, decrees, and laws to observe or to obey is not really something, that's not the language we want to hear. We're we're individualistic Americans. We don't like to be told what to do, right? We equate those words with control We equate those concepts with an abuse of power usually, Um, not of love and care, do we? That's not the way we take those kinds of words. But I want you to notice the language of love and of blessing and of care that this opening shares. Listen to it. With phrases like, that you may enjoy a long life, that, that it may go well with you, that you may increase greatly. God's got a heart for us right? And the allusion to these wonderful promises and blessings that would be fulfilled among them. So it's, it's couched in this language of love and care. In other words, these commands and decrees and laws are redemptive, protect, protective, loving directives, aren't they? We, 
cannot understand the Old Testament or its law without seeing it through love's perspective, right? As a way of working out our relationship with God and with each other. So, and now we need to only go back to chapter 5 to see that Moses is alluding to the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, right? In our last series, we saw how Jesus in Mark chapter 12, uh, you know, he, he meets this scribe and, and, and the guy says, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus replies, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with, or with all your mind, with all your strength. Yeah, I got that right. This is the first commandment. And the second like it is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There are no other commandments greater than these, right? And with that statement, Jesus sums up all of the Ten Commandments, doesn't he? Because the first, uh, the first four uh, relate to our vertical love relationship with God, right? And the second six relate to our relationship with each other, our love relationship with, each, with people around us. So Augustine said it this way. He said, love God and do as you please, right? In that order, by the way. Not do as you please and then love God. But, but love God and do as you please. And it's a brilliant statement if you think about it because when you really love the Lord your God first, you put him first in all things in life with all your heart and your mind and soul and strength and all that stuff, then you naturally want to do what's right out there in the world. If I love God, I'll have no other gods before him. I'll not make graven images. I, I, I'll, I'll not take his name in vain, things like that. If I love other people, my neighbor my, as myself, then I'll not steal from them, lie from them, covet what is theirs, or kill them. Right? God gave us the Ten Commandments as a standard by which we should live. It's the moral law of life. We, we can't accomplish this through our own strength. We know that. But we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, Philippians 4.13. So he wants to give us new desires in our hearts and to eliminate old ones that are not compatible with his character and his heart. Obeying the law of God, not because we have to, not because you know, it's the legalistic thing to do, but because it's become what we want to do. It's become our desire. I was thinking about this yesterday, side note, sorry, that, man, there are certain things that I just couldn't do in this world. Like, they were talking on the radio about uh, violence and video games and stuff like that. I'm not making many, any big thing about video games, but I don't think that I could sit there and develop a video game where it was just very bloody and killing. I couldn't do it. I, I just couldn't do it as a Christian. I would think that's not something I want to contribute to the world. You know, just little things like that. It, it, God's heart becomes your heart and your life changes, doesn't it? It really does. And, and, you know, once that happens, we'll no longer see God's commands as restrictive, right? But they, instead they become healthy barriers that are designed to guard and to guide and to bring life. Which brings us to the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. If you want to look back there, page 125. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's a very important statement right there. Verse 5, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Uh, Jesus, that's where he got it, right? These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. T 
tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Isn't that a cool passage? It really is. You know, not leaving the concept of worship in the dust, you know, I don't want to have that series for four weeks and we just forget about it. We realize that these three concepts, worship, word, and witness, they are interdependent. You can't pull them apart, right? You know, uh, they are definable alone. They can stand alone in a definition, but one doesn't happen without the others, does it? It really doesn't. A love for the word leads to a lifestyle of public worship that is glorifying and proclaiming the name of Jesus across the board. Our witness, right? And so we recognize and we accept God's love in communicating what is good and what is healthy and what is right for us and to be honorific in our posture towards him. So it it becomes an act of loving sacrifice to delve deeply into God's word, to assimilate and practice it in all areas of life, to apply it to ourselves, to allow it to change us, Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? Because God's word reveals who he is. God's word reveals who he is. And for the lover of God, you know, if I say I'm in Christ, if I love, love the Lord, It becomes something that I interact with on a daily basis, regularly, right? Not just on Sundays and not just on Bible studies. I mean, I understand my sermons are brilliant and they are so passionate and they are so rousing. And you leave here and you think about them all week, but they're not enough. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but seriously, just not just Sundays, not just Bible studies, right? This is not, that's not enough for us. Especially in this world right now, with you got like a bajillion voices <laughs> shouting at you all the time. And by prioritizing a sort of a consistent time in God's word, we tr- are transformed by his love and we become agents of his love to others around us, right? This passage is called the Shema due to, and if I, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. I wish, I wish I knew. But it's due to the first word, Hebrew word in verse 4, and that is the word here, right? A, a core text of Judaism, right? Conveying what God already commanded to Moses to teach God's people. We saw that in verses 1 through 3. And he declares right there, the Lord is one. The Lord is one, affirming what he already told them in in chapter 4, verse 35. And there he said, the Lord is God, there is no other beside him. The Lord is God, there is no other beside him. And because of that truth, we are commanded to love him wholeheartedly because he alone is God And let me say it very boldly, there is no other. Amen. Thank you for saying amen. I'm a little scared to preach these things sometimes. The pridefully arrogant don't acknowledge this, and they refuse it, right? They refuse this fact. Oswald Chambers, in a devotional I recently read and I shared with the guys on Friday morning, points out that sin isn't something that we can't that we can remedy ourselves, obviously. We know that from the gospel. Therefore, Jesus died for the sin of what? Jason and you guys? No. Jesus died for the sin of the whole world. The whole world. Now, is that to teach universalism? 
that because Jesus died for the sin of the whole world, everybody just gets to go to heaven, do whatever they want and go to heaven? No, it's not to teach that. Not at all. People relegate themselves to eternal separation from God in refusing to acknowledge Jesus as God revealed to us as the only way to salvation and as Lord of all things. So sin doesn't necessarily send us to hell. Maybe it's the sin of pride, but that's paid for. Sin is paid for. Jesus took care of that. Our prideful refusal to bend our knee to his lordship, to the king of kings, does send us to hell. And that is just the truth. God's not found through any other religion or spirituality. I want to start preaching this again. My goodness, have we lost that? God is not found through any other religion or spirituality. And I say that very boldly, and I've been heavily criticized for saying this by some. I don't get it. I'm a Christian. This is what I believe. This is what we should all believe as Christians, right? Now, I'm not saying that he doesn't use other spiritualities or religions to maybe prompt us to himself, to get us to understand and start the journey of finding him. But if you are finding something and being prompted, you will end up in orthodox historical Christianity. You will end up in the church, in other words, because that's our repository. This is where we're walking together to do the kingdom of God. You can't live it outside of the church. You can't. If God is leading you, you'll end up here or in a church like this. Since God, and here's the reason, and I want you to listen very carefully. Since God reveals himself in only the way that he is able to reveal himself. And that is by the scriptures, and that is in the person of Jesus Christ. All other spiritual thought out there is drastically different than the biblical message. Drastically different. If you take the time to read them. The Bible is unique in its message of grace. That God pursues us and that God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. No other religion preaches that. None. It is so unique about what it reveals about God and his character and his heart. It is very different than all the others. If you take the time to read, you will understand that. Think about it this way. If you painted a masterpiece, you were a great artist, and you painted a masterpiece, and it was hanging in the National Museum of Art someplace, and then somebody came along at the, at the museum, and they put a little placard on there, attributing your work to somebody else, boy, you'd be really upset. I'd be irked to no end. I'd be really mad. Because you want the onlookers to acknowledge and appreciate your work and you as the artist. That is only natural and right. And we, when we attribute all this to something else, that's a, that's a shame. If you were asked to write a description for yourself in a class, you know, just like a half a page description, your likes, your dislikes, your dreams, your, you know, your desires, your physical traits, I got dreadlocks, you know, I've got tattoos and all this stuff, you know, and, and you're, you hand it in and your teacher corrects it and changes all your personal details. Now you don't have like brown dreadlocks, you've got like straight blonde hair, Jason, and, and you don't have any tattoos. You would be, it would, you'd be upset it wouldn't be you anymore. It wouldn't describe you. Not at all. And that is because you, as a sentient being, you can only communicate yourself in the way that you are. 
Some people these days are trying to communicate themselves in a way that they aren't. It doesn't work. You can only communicate yourself in the way that you are. And likewise, God as sentient being only communicates his heart and his character consistent with who he is. And so what we find is that there is only one God. He is the great I am. And he speaks to us through the Bible and through the person of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen on that one? Amen. 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 It is not through the seven valleys or the four valleys of, of Baha'i. It's not through the Al-Quran and the Hadith of Islam. It is not found in the Tripitaka, the three baskets of Hinduism or Buddhism. It's not in the Vedas and Upa, Upa, what is it? Upa, Upishana, it's a hard one to say, Upanishads of, of Hinduism. It's not in the Wiccan Book of Shadows. It is not the Guru Granth Sahib of Sikhism. It's not in any of those things. It's not in, in, in any other spirituality. There's only one God who has communicated himself through the Hebrew Christian scriptures. That's it. A faith that stands alone, absolutely different than among all the others, expressing the oneness, the love, the holiness, the glory, and the sacrificial grace of the only true God, and that is Jesus Christ. Amen. And we, we have to come back to that. I've lost friendships over this. Jesus says, if you don't hate father, mother, sister, brother, blah, 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 you can't be my disciple. This does come first. It does. I'm sorry to say, but it does. And it's going to come first and it's, gonna, and it's gonna start affecting your life if it hasn't already. It's gonna start affecting your relationships. And you gotta be ready for that because things have changed. The, the rules have changed. Getting back to the passage. <laughs> the heart here was equivalent to the mind or the rational sort of part of the human con- of, of humankind, including all of our passions and desires. That in, in Jewish sort of thought, Heart and mind were one thing, right? And that, that's really consistent with modern science, isn't it? The soul refers to that invisible part of us, you know, that, that, that sort of the invisible individual person qua person, including all the will and sensibilities of, of the person. And then the strength is, of course, our physical side with all its capabilities and functions and all that kind of stuff. And the words Moses spoke to the Israelites were to be on their heart. They were to be central to the whole person, you know? And historically, we know that the Jews took verses 8 and 9 very literally. And by the way, I don't really think that that's a bad thing. You know, today you might even see, if you enter a Jewish home, a mezuzah on the, on the door frame of the house, a little thing that's kind of tilted. I had them in my house because the guy before me was Jewish, and I should have kept them. You know, I, 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 don't know why, I don't know why I pulled them off, but I pulled them off. Um, but they're little, these little things that adorn every Jewish home, right? And it's a piece of parchment that is rolled up and it's, it's put in a little decorative case and it's inscribed with uh, some Hebrew verses, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, and then 11, 13 through 21. And they're affixed to these doorposts to fulfill this biblical commandment or this mitzvah in verse 9, right? And then they also use teflon or phylacteries, they're called as well, a set of small black leather boxes. And you've seen the pictures, you know, guys at the wailing wall or whatever. And, 
you know, they also contain these little scrolls of parchment inscribed with verses from the Torah, and they have to be written by a certain guy and all this kind of stuff. And one's on the forehead and one's on the arm, and then they have like a leather strap wrapped around their arm. And they contain four handwritten texts, two from Exodus and two from Deuteronomy, and 6, 4 through 9 is one of those. And these, you know, even though it's, you know, you might look at that and think that's kind of silly, you know, like, why, why, why do that? Why take it so literally? But it, it, it actually is a, a healthy reminder, you know, as you come into your home of the importance of God's word. As you do your morning prayers, these, wearing these things, it's kind of always keeping it before you that the word of God is important in my life, of overall importance. We do the same things in some ways, right? Christians, uh, Christians right now view this command as, how we keep, uh, how how we uh, live our lives holistically, holistically before God to keep the Word before us at all times and in all things, and we'd be right in that regard. But we kind of do some literal things too, which are helpful, right? You know, there are very practical ways of keeping the Word of God before you. You walk into a Christian home, and uh, you see verses adorning the walls and little plaques. Little, usually, they're kind of cheesy, you know. I'm an artist. I get a little, little upset about how things look sometimes. But, but we, you know, you, you see these things. They're a remembrance, right? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know, our house will be a house of prayer for all nations. You know, those kind of verses on the walls are a remembrance. And guests of your home, might, it might be the first time they've ever read the Scriptures. It might be the first time that they are confronted with biblical truth. Think about that. Keeping a Bible out on key tables in your home or even uh, in the bathroom because we know, all know we read in the bathroom, <laughs> right? But by the way, every Bible in front of you is free. Take them. Take them off the tables back there. Take them off the shelf. They are free for you to take home, to hand out to other people or to keep them at your house. Take a stack of them. We have hundreds. I'd rather them fly out this door than just sitting there in the, in the chairs every week. By all means, you're not stealing. It's not a five-finger discount. You're just taking them, right? Um, they're, they're given to you. They're a gift, right? Just take them. But, uh, and, and keep them out at your home, right? Uh, having a Bible app on your, on your phone with a daily reminder verse or, or you know, a reading plan in it is a really helpful thing. Um, keeping note cards with memorization scriptures. You know, like, you know, my wife always has like a little stack of, three-by-five note cards that she's always memorizing Scripture with. Um, having your set corner, your little place in your house where you sit down every morning and you, you have a quiet time with the Lord and you read your Bible and you highlight it and, and you take notes in it or whatever. I was with somebody recently and they're like, oh, I can't write in the Bible. That's, they, like, they just didn't like to do that, so they always had a little separate notebook. I scribble all over my Bible. But, um, but that's a great practice. By the way... Start your free right now media account through this church. Just go to our website, start it up. There's all kinds of little videos on there. Five-minute videos, 10-minute videos that you can use for your quiet time. Little Bible study videos. and It's really good stuff. Um, so you're not at a lack of having avenues, right? But it doesn't just end with study and reading and journaling and writing and all those sort of private, quiet moments with yourself. Look at no ver verse 7. Impress them on your children, it says. Talk about them when you sit at home. 
and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. So it's, in other words, begin and end and everything in between your day with the word of God in mind of just sort of living it out, talking it out, you know, a communal sort of attitude about always bringing up the word of God, bring, bring it to light with other people around you, talking about it, keeping it before each other, always sort of like living out of it. So moms and dads, memorize verses as a family. Pray together as a family. Do a little devotional, five-minute devotional before dinner as a family. Whatever you have to do, get that word before them, right? Share with your family. Share with your friends about your own faith, your own joys and struggles. Live it openly, right? Be an open book. Be confessional before your children, right? Allow them to watch your, you and measure your life and watch you do all this measuring of your life against the word of God and allow them to see the desire in you to be transformed by the living word of God. Amen. Amen. And then it becomes real to them, doesn't it? Then they, go up, they grow up and they can never point back to dad and say, hey, he never lived it. I mean, my kids know my faults. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wish I did some of this stuff better growing up, you know, for sure, but still. Do it. Do it as much as you can, right? Kristen, uh, who just gave us announcements and did a great job, by the way, uh, shared this week at community group that she prays over people at work. And I'm sure she uses the word and injects the word in there at different times. And it's become very commonplace for her to do so. You said this, right? I'm not crazy. Okay. And, uh, and people become, have come to expect it and like it. Live your faith out in front of people. Don't be bold. Don't be all, mm, I'm afraid what they're going to think. Who cares what they think, right? Think more about what Jesus thinks. Uh, and, you know, if you're going to do that, it means spending significant time in the Word yourself for it to become the worldview with which you look at life. Submit yourself. Allow yourself to be transformed by the, by the Word of God, like 12, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says. Beyond some Sunday sermons and Bible studies, beyond all that, the ingestion of God's word should be of central importance to us as his people. And in doing so, we actually are loving God with our private life, which is imperative so that we can love God in public as we engage in politics and economics and civic life. We as Christians love God with our whole lives. That was the message of the worship series, right? Saying the same thing over and over again. I'm a broken record. Right? In st spending time in God's word, he transforms us inwardly, which impacts our outward life. And so we, we don't read the Bible just to become adept at, you know, spouting biblical knowledge. That's not our purpose. We read it to connect with Jesus and to grow in relationship with him and to grow in understanding our purpose in his plan for the world right? And it's hard to build relationship with somebody that you're not, you know, or grow closer to them that you're not spending time with. It just, that's just the truth. It's just an axiom of life, right? God doesn't drift away from us. He invites us to meet with him through his word daily, and even if it feels dry, it is still good for you, right? To grow closer is to spend consistent time in scripture sometimes the most practical ways to connect with with the lord uh proved to be the most difficult for us right my wife likes to combine her great passions 
with her great love, and I'm not her great love. Jesus is, right? I come second. I'm okay with that, right? But she went to Longwood Gardens a couple weeks ago and for the day, and before she left, she announced, two's company, three's a crowd. I'm going to spend the day with Jesus. You're not invited. <laughs> and then she sat in the meadow, and she read, and she prayed, and she journaled, and she had a great time. And she probably prayed quite a bit about me because I'm a hard guy to live with. Um, one study took, said it took uh, 18 to 254 days to establish a habit, depending on the person. Uh, for me, I'm more the 254-day guy. Um, but do yourself a favor. Begin to develop Bible habits, right? Go to church and go to Bible regularly. And, and, and I just let me say it clearly. Make it a priority. It's become a world where it's not priority. Make it absolute priority. If you can get there, get there. You heard what Kristen said, that... I don't want to show, another person, my friend Keith in Colorado, said the same thing on the phone. You know, I called him and he says, oh, it's like another hour I have my Bible study. And I'm like, oh, you don't want to go? He's like, no, but it's really good. I always, I always really benefit from it. And that's the, you know, we always feel that way. Some of that is spiritual demonic practice against us as well, just uh, trying to hold us back. Get that Bible app on your phone. Start to get a, you know, a daily reminder verse. Get... Download a, a topical study or a, you know, a read the Bible in a year uh, from them, you know, a plan to do that. Place Bibles around your house. Again, they're free from here. Get some framed verses for your wall. Get some scripture memory cards, you know, that start to memorize scripture. Start your free right now media account and, and use that. Talk openly about your faith with everybody you come in contact with, right? Impress this on your children. Let them see you live Jesus out loud. Let him become the lens with which you see life, which you view everything through. God's word reveals who he is, and for the lover of God, therefore, it becomes something we interact with all the time, beyond Sundays, beyond Bible studies, and by prioritizing consistent time in his word, we are transformed by his love and we become active agents of his love to the world around us. And isn't that what we want? Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you that you are the one true God and that you have done for us what we cannot do, we could not do for ourselves. And we thank you that Ephesians 2.10, Lord, that you've created us for good works that you prepared in advance for us to do. And that by your grace, we can live this stuff out loud before the people around us. So we pray that you would, you would inject in us a healthy desire to know you better through your word, through interaction with you, through our prayer life, through our interaction together and, and also our private times together or with you. We thank you so much that you are a God that pursues us, that not single, a single person in this room set out to find the Lord in their lives, but that you interrupted our journey and brought us into your kingdom. And we thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.